0: Hi. We're going to be talking about violence and sexual violence in this series. Please take care while listening.
1: Welcome back to the official companion podcast of HBO's All Be Gone in the Dark. I'm your host, Nancy Miller. The saga of the Golden State Killer has been this strange, haunting part of my life, off and on, for the last eight years. Way back when, when I was Michelle McNamara's editor on that original Golden State Killer piece in Los Angeles Magazine, I definitely had a gut feeling that Michelle's work would one day become a best-selling book. But everything after that was impossible to predict. Michelle's untimely death, the urgent completion of her work, and the capture and sentencing of Joseph James D'Angelo. And now, GSK is behind bars for good. While the documentary series came to a close last August, there was this one last thing. This one last maddening loose end for the filmmakers that Michelle herself had left behind. I got interested in true crime um, because when I was 14, living outside Chicago, a neighbor of mine was murdered and it's still unsolved. Her name was Kathy Lombardo. The Kathy Lombardo case, the unsolved murder that sparked Michelle's interest in true crime. The filmmakers captured so much more of this story than we got to see in the first six episodes. And even after that last one aired, they continued to investigate the Lombardo case. Now they're telling the stories they unearthed in a special new episode that's available to watch right now on HBO and HBO Max. So for this final bonus episode of the podcast, we're going to take you through this still unsolved Lombardo case and the confounding maze the filmmakers found themselves in. We'll talk on the same threads that Michelle left behind and share new material from director and producer Elizabeth Wolfe and co-executive producer Billy Jensen. We're going to look into long-lost evidence, the police missteps, and an eerily similar case that might hint that Kathy Lombardo's killer could be yet another serial predator. But let's start at the beginning, where Michelle first wrote about this case, on her blog, True Crime Diary. You can still read Michelle's post about Lombardo on her blog. It's aptly titled Origin Story. She also read it on the podcast Storyworthy back in 2013. I handled my first crime scene evidence the summer I was 14. Specifically, broken pieces from a yellow Walkman, a Walkman that 48 hours earlier had been in the ears of Kathy Lombardo. Kathy Lombardo was attacked on a warm summer evening in 1984 in Oak Park a neighborhood just west of Chicago. She'd been out for one of her regular brisk evening walks when someone pulled her into an alleyway. The police report revealed that Kathy was sexually assaulted and attacked with a knife. The killer stabbed her throat, then slipped away. The details around her murder, while gruesome, would prove essential to moving the case forward. So would the fact that this attack happened less than a mile from Michelle's childhood home. I traced my obsession to the moment in the alley with the pieces of Walkman when I was 14. Kathy Lombardo was gone. She wasn't coming back. But he, whomever he was, was still out there. The hollow gap of his identity was violently powerful to me. I wanted to see his face. I wanted to know who he was. Before Michelle passed away, she was gathering information on the Lombardo case for her book. She had planned to write a whole chapter about it, including new leads. She kept voice memos of conversations with witnesses, this case was all over Michelle's computer.
2: I have Michelle's hard drive on my computer. She's always there with me because if I do a search for something of my own cases or whatever, one of her files will pop up because it's she had so many files on things.
1: Billy Jensen is a friend of Michelle's and a fellow cold case journalist who helped finish her book. He's a true crime writer who not only reports on unsolved cases, he actually solves them. And that in large part is due to the fact that he was inspired by Michelle's work. Since he made the switch to crime solving, he's helped investigate homicides and missing persons cases. I spoke with Billy about
2: continuing Michelle's legacy by bringing those skills to the Lombardo case. It's interesting because I found Lombardo Start, which is a document, and it says, life can be distilled to a bed, a box fan, and a book. The young woman puts on her Walkman head- earphones and starts to power walk from her apartment. This seems to me like a
1: perfect archetypal cold case. It's a 1980s jogger attacked in the alley murder mystery that
2: seems solvable? I don't know. It does seem solvable. I would say it does seem solvable. The
1: filmmakers behind the series thought it seemed solvable too. The production team spent over a year looking into the case for the documentary, but almost all of it was left on the cutting room floor. That is, until now.
0: I wanted to pursue every thread that was in that book. And we pursued the Kathy Lombardo case as much as we pursued Michelle's friends and family and the Golden State Killer case. Everything was equally looked into in the beginning.
1: This is Elizabeth Wolfe. She's a producer and director on All Be Gone in the Dark. She directed the new special episode about the case in episode two of the series, where Michelle reflects on the murder of Kathy Lombardo.
0: You know, after 30 years, it was still on her mind. And after the Golden State Killer, this was the case she was hoping to crack. So we wanted to tell the story as a part of our exploration of Michelle's fascination with unsolved murders. And we also wanted to pick up where Michelle left off.
1: Elizabeth and her production team tried to figure out how they'd bring that one chapter about Lombardo into the series and how they might even expand on it.
0: Michelle really thought that she was going to go set out and solve the Golden State Killer case. And I don't know why her story in this instance wasn't perhaps a cautionary tale for me, but we were all sitting around thinking, how are we going to solve this case? Like, let's solve it.
1: When Michelle was researching the Lombardo case for All Be Gone in the Dark, She was exploring theories about whether the murderer was someone from outside the community or if it was someone Kathy knew, like a neighbor or a friend. So Michelle started talking to people who remembered that day. And she actually found someone who had been there on the scene, one of the boys who found Kathy Lombardo in the alley.
0: She was still breathing at the time, though she died a few minutes after they found her. And he and his buddies were the ones who alerted the neighbors who called the police. So Elizabeth and her team were able to connect with that same witness. It felt like this could be the thread to
1: get out of the maze.
0: And he took me on a tour of the crime scene, recounted the night in question, and told me everything he told Michelle, who also met with him. Uh, He also filled in some details about his own theories.
1: While the witness theories didn't advance the case, Elizabeth and the team stayed committed to their investigation. And started talking next steps.
0: I thought, okay, if we're going to go any further in this, if we're going to start asking questions of the Oak Park PD, if we're going to start trying to revive attention for this case, we need to get in touch with her family.
3: I remember distinctly, there are certain things that stand out in a person's life and the birth of my children stand out uh, probably more than anything else. The night my sister was murdered stands out. This
1: is Chris Lombardo. Kathy's younger brother. After writing Chris a letter, Elizabeth started talking to him on the phone regularly. And eventually, she sat down with him for an interview.
0: You know, Chris is a thoughtful but somber guy. There's a lot of sadness about him. And though he doesn't often talk about Kathy's death, that loss clearly impacted his whole life.
3: My mother never recovered from it. I I don't think she had found any comfort or peace uh, for the five years she lived after that, she she would just start screaming or raving out of grief and, uh, you know, torment. And it was all related to my sister's murder.
1: This must have been a really difficult conversation for Chris. Why did you think he wanted to bring it all up again and, and talk to you about it?
0: I think he wants resolution.
3: My father's health was declining, and... I really wanted to see this resolved during his lifetime. I wanted him to be able to put at least some part of this behind him. I dislike the idea of someone butchering another human being and just walking away as if nothing had happened. I can't think of the whole world of murdered people's siblings and murdered people's children and and all of the the horrors that, that humans commit against other humans. But I, this one I'm concerned about, I'm interested in, and I'd, I'd like to see resolved.
0: Even though Chris has gone on and had a, a full life, raised children, and even though he's not devoting his whole life to solving this case and obsessing over it, When an opportunity presents itself that might bring attention to this case, that might solve this for him and his brothers and the memory of his parents and the memory of Kathy, he wasn't going to not take that opportunity.
1: And the next thread for Elizabeth, Chris, and the team to pull on was in the hands of the Oak Park police.
0: We thought... Let's go in and just start a dialogue, right? Like, we want to work with the police. And we drafted a letter to send to Oak Park requesting the police files.
1: Chris had previously filed for a Freedom of Information Act request in the early 2000s, hoping to review the case files. While that request was denied, around that same time, he was in contact with the lead detective on the case, who shared some information. So, Chris and Elizabeth were somewhat familiar with what the police were working with.
0: We know that Oak Park PD has the clothing she was wearing and parts of her Walkman. And Chris also gave the police evidence back in 2006.
3: My dad had in his, among his things when he passed away, an envelope. It had the Cook County Medical Examiner's name and address stamped onto it. And it said something like, Personal property envelope, and it had uh, blood stains on the outside of the envelope. And I never opened it. My dad told me that it was the headphones my sister had been wearing when she was out that night, and I provided them the headphones.
0: We also know that they collected physical evidence.
3: People that commit crimes with knives often stab or cut themselves. Blood is very slippery, and this guy may have cut himself in the process.
0: We know that they had material from under her fingernails that they collected um, and tested, and unfortunately used up back in the early aughts. And we assume that they have all this other physical evidence from her clothing, from the possible rape kit, but we have not been able to get confirmation about what that is. We have not been able to confirm with them that they have a rape kit, that it survived.
1: When Chris was in touch with the police over a decade ago, they filled him in on all of this, but he couldn't do much about it because he didn't have the resources. He didn't have the time to look into the leads on his own. He didn't have the money to hire lawyers or private
3: investigators.
1: But now Chris had a whole team of filmmakers behind him.
3: The production company has certain resources available to it that are beyond those of a normal, ordinary person for this purpose, So we started down an avenue of reestablishing contact and uh, your people making contact with Oak Park and having this lawyer who's familiar with public access to information act on our behalf to try and get what we could, to learn what we could, to, to move this along.
1: If the police shared their files with Chris and the production team, then they could use their resources, their time and money, to scour through and try and pick up on patterns the original detectives may have missed. And if the police shared evidence, the production team could then do a third-party testing and run it against similar cases. So sending out this request to get the files was a really crucial next step in solving the
3: case. They're very protective. The Oak Park police are very protective about what evidence they have. But I know there were certain pieces of physical evidence that the Oak Park police thought would be uh, hopeful, uh, that would offer the promise of positive results as far as identifying someone's DNA. So you go and
1: make a request to get the police files and they said no
0: not the answer we were hoping for mm. not the answer we were hoping for so what did they tell you it's an open investigation they're still working on it they can't work with us i, I don't know it's a, it's unfortunate because we know that law enforcement and oak park pd doesn't have the resources to devote to various cold cases
3: I'm still somewhat hopeful that this is a solvable case, even if information never leaves the the Oak Park police until they solve it. Uh, But I don't have any real hope that they will, that they'll devote resources or energy to it. Uh, They have more recent crimes. They have, you know, they have a gang problem. They have violent crime in connection with drug gangs, uh, things that they didn't necessarily have 35 years ago.
1: In March, 2021, Story Syndicate, the production company behind the series, along with Chris Lombardo, filed a lawsuit against the Oak Park Police Department. They're suing for access to Kathy Lombardo's case files. Because without that access, Elizabeth and her team were stuck with
2: the limited leads they could follow on their own. When you're clearly stuck, and it's been 30 years, 35 years, and you're looking at a case like Kathy Lombardo's, you're going to want to look around at other cases from the area that are similar to see if they might have more information and link things up. This is Billy Jensen again. If you can find three or four similar cases, there might be a description that matches. There might be a description that if you believe that the Lombardo case is a serial case, which it very well could be, if you look at the other files, then you match up. It's like a Venn diagram. So the team started looking for patterns. They read through local newspaper
1: articles searching for stabbings and sexual assaults that happened near Oak Park over a 20-year period. They found an article about a woman who was stabbed half a block away from where Kathy's body was found. On paper, the attack had a lot of commonalities with Kathy's. But in this case, the woman survived. The filmmakers got in touch with her.
4: They had reported that it was just cut. Like it was a cut. A little cut, you know. But it wasn't just a little cut. It was an attempted rape. It was an attempted murder. Grace has lived in
1: Oak Park her whole life. She grew up playing in the alleyways with her neighbors. She went to the same church as the McNamaras. The Lombardas lived down the street. At 15 years old, Grace was focused on her studies. But she loved taking ballet classes after school and found freedom in the movement. Overall, Grace was independent. She always felt safe walking around Oak Park by herself. And then. About a year and a half before Kathy Lombardo's murder, the unthinkable happened. Grace is going to tell her story here, and I just want to warn you that over the next few minutes, she recounts her attack in graphic and disturbing detail.
4: So the year I was attacked, it was winter, and I was 15. I went to school like like regular, normal day, and probably... Went home, probably argued with my mom about, you know, who's going to drive me to ballet. Then probably ended up walking. I remember her telling me before I left, oh, pick up Christmas ornaments. And she gave me like $20 to go get some ornaments.
1: So on her way home from ballet class, still in her leotard with her backpack in tow, she stopped by the pharmacy and then continued home.
4: And I was walking home. Just like normal. I felt like someone was around. And I started walking a little bit faster because I heard someone behind me. And I, for some reason, was afraid to turn around. I kept thinking, oh, I'm only literally like a half block from my house. All I have to do is turn the corner and, you know, there's my house. And so I was walking. I could you know, sense someone was getting closer and all of a sudden someone was next to me and they asked something like, Hey, how you doing? Or, or what's your name? Or I don't even remember what they asked because out of the corner of my other eye, I could see a flash of a knife. It was almost like in a movie where you see that flash of a knife and like, Oh my God, (laughs) all of a sudden there was a hand over my face, a knife at my neck and I got pulled into the alley. It seemed like he didn't know what to do. And he pulled me over to like the other side of the alley and then had me get on my knees. I think he was gonna try to rape me. He still had the knife at my neck and told me he was gonna kill me. And then he was telling me to take my pants down, so I did. I had to explain what a leotard was to a man holding a knife against my neck. And that was not successful. Because he didn't want me to talk. <laughs> so I couldn't explain it. I tried to. So I think he got frustrated. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I'm on my knees. And I feel feel the crunch of a knife going into my throat. And I had a whole lot of cuts all over. But this one, I could feel him moving his fingers around my neck to figure out where to put the knife. And it just, the crunching went on and on. And then he left, pulled the knife out and left. And I fell on my back. And I remember just laying there. Just looking up at the sky. And I could feel like the blood just all over, under my hair, just pouring out. And then when you're laying there, you start thinking of different things. And I probably, you know, prayed to God. (laughs) I thought I was dead. Then at one point, I was like, wait a second. I'm lying here in the alley. And if a truck comes down, it's going to roll over me. So I remember, like, shifting my body into the space that someone had next to their garage. And then after I did that, I was like, wait a second. (laughs) If I'm going to die, I'm going to die at my house. (laughs) I actually was only about four houses away, so I got up and just kind of walked, like, deliriously, to my house. My father opened the door, and he had a really surprised look on his face. Like, shocked.
1: Grace's dad called 911, and the paramedics came just in time. She spent the next several days in the hospital, being visited by her parents, a few of her siblings, and the police. She gave the police a description of the attacker, but nothing ever came of it. They didn't catch the guy, which was actually fine with
4: Grace. I didn't care if they caught him, to be honest. At the time, I didn't care. You know? It's like, he's gone. It would be good if they caught him, but I, you know, so it didn't happen again. But I felt like that was going to be a needle in a haystack kind of thing.
1: But then, a year and a half later, Grace heard the news about Kathy Lombardo. And I was in, like, shock. All of these details about Kathy's story, the location, the weapon, the type of attack... Grace felt like she was being told her own story.
4: And I thought, I think that he was looking for me. Because I knew she kind of looked like me, but I thought, oh, my God. Like, maybe he knew he didn't kill me, which is weird. I don't, I don't know why I would think that. But then I, I thought, even if he wasn't, it has to be the same person. So I think for the first time I cried because she didn't make it. But someone said, oh, someone slit her throat. But like I said, I felt like when I was stabbed, like, he was trying to figure out where and how to stab me by the way he was moving his fingers on my throat. So, you know, maybe I was practice.
1: It was clear to Elizabeth and her team that there were a lot of similarities in Grace's and Kathy's attacks. But they didn't know if it was the same perpetrator because they didn't have access to any of that evidence, like Grace's backpack and clothes. Maybe those items are still in the evidence locker. Maybe the attacker's blood is on some kind of material that could be tested against some of the evidence from Kathy's attack. It may be someone who saw Grace at the pharmacy or saw her cross the street before the attack remembers something that they never reported during the initial investigation. And maybe that person could come forward. But that's a lot of maybes, which Billy Jensen knows has its pitfalls.
2: You, know, you want to say that oh, this is, this is too close, but you can't always go there. You have to do your due diligence and, and always remain doubtful or have that doubt in your mind that you know this might not be connected. Let's not throw all our eggs in like A, B, and C are all connected because they very well might not be. But when you're dealing with a cold case and you really have become stuck or hit a brick wall, you've got to look at those other cases and see if there's anything else there that can match up and follow another string out of the maze.
4: It would be very important to follow through. I think that there's hope for this case. And if they could catch the Golden State Killer, they can catch this guy.
1: Elizabeth and her team again found themselves at yet another frustrating dead end. Because the reality is that in our criminal justice system, it is immensely difficult to solve a 30-year-old case. But as we've learned from the work of people like Michelle McNamara, these unsolved cases are important stories to tell because articles, books, and documentaries bring public attention and renewed interest to old cases. And that attention can lead to real action, even real justice, which is why Chris Lombardo continues to remain hopeful.
3: Of course, I'd like someone to come forward to to the Oak Park Police or the Cook County State's Attorney's Office or some relevant member of, of law enforcement or prosecution and say that he did it. I want someone to come forward or, alternatively, someone who was afraid to come forward at the time to offer information they have that they've been sitting on for the last 35 years. I mean, I'd still like to see the guy either to confirm that he's already dead or to have him face charges for the crime that he committed. But first, he's got to be identified.
1: If you have any information related to Grace's case or Kathy Lombardo's, you can call both the Cook County State's Attorney's Office and the Oak Park Police Department's anonymous tip line. Those phone numbers are in the show notes. Thanks to Liz Garbus, Elizabeth Wolf, Kate Berry, Sam Gordon, Grace Fardella, and the entire Story Syndicate team for sharing all of your work with us. And thank you to Billy Jensen and Paul Haynes. I'm your host, Nancy Miller. This podcast was produced by HBO in conjunction with Pineapple Street Studios. Our team at Pineapple Street Studios includes executive producers Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Linsky, and Barry Finkel. Our managing producer is Gabrielle Lewis. Gabrielle and Barry also produced this episode. Our associate producer is Janelle Anderson. Our editor is Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. Our engineer is Noriko Okabe. Original music by Andrew Epen of Basement Crafts. And special thanks to Greg Beaton at Tangelo Grove Studios for his engineering help. If you like the show and you have a minute, you can review and rate this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you might get your podcasts. It really helps people find the show. You can also stream it on HBO and HBO Max.
0: If you or someone you know has been sexually assaulted, you can get help. By calling the Rape Abuse and Incest National Network, or RAIN, you can call their 24-hour hotline at 800-656-HOPE (hope) or visit HBO.com/gone for more resources.